Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Ross Papu, who's the partner and head of private equity mature funds at Resource Capital Funds, um, who are mineral focused, sorry, mining focused, global alternative investment firm, um, and has been in the private equity mine investment space for over 25 years. Um, and they've been partnering with investors and mining firms to build strong, successful and sustainable businesses um, and that strive to produce superior returns for all its stakeholders. Um, Ross has a degree in metallurgy and a master's in mineral economics um, with an extensive career expanding over 35 years, um, providing both technical and financial valuation and supporting project identification, analysis, uh, development, valuation, project finance, M&A, um, and sourcing capital for both private and public markets. Um, he's been with um, RCF for over 20 years, um, and is here today to tell us a little bit more about RCF and what they do. We're going to te- speak about the current financial climate within our industry, um, and how you might be able to get into private equity if you want to sort of change your, uh, change your career within the mining industry, um, plus much more. Um, Ross is also going to be attending Europe's largest uh, mining event, which is Resourcing Tomorrow, um, formerly known as the Mines and Money um, in London, which is taking place in uh, on the 28th to 30th of November. So literally in probably three or four weeks time. Um, it's a great platform for the entire mining value chain, fostering learning, lively debates, and providing valuable networking opportunities. So um, please register, get some tickets now. Um, if you look in the show notes or if you're watching on the YouTube channel below, um, you can get some um, discounts on on tickets if you put the code DIGDEEP10, which is all included in the show notes of companies. So go and uh, get your tickets now. So... After all that, I want to welcome Ross to the podcast. How are you doing, Ross? Uh, doing great. Thanks uh, very much, Rob. I appreciate it and appreciate being invited to participate. Yeah, and I appreciate your time. And as we were speaking off air, you are a um, avid listener as well, and you've listened to a few of the podcasts. And uh, now you're now you're in the hot seat. So I wonder if you can, um, and I'm sure a lot of our audience will know you, uh, but for those that don't know you, I wondered if you can just tell, um, give our audience a little bit. Um, Tell us a little bit about your career and about your background. Sure. No, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, look, my I got uh, I got exposed to the industry through my father, who was a professor of metallurgical engineering, and and I followed in his footsteps. Decided to study metallurgical engineering. I, I, I actually did a bachelor's and master's in metallurgical engineering. Decided pretty early on that uh, I loved the industry, loved the technology, but I wanted to be on the business side of the business. And so I, I then went and did a, a mineral economics degree, and I, I did a PhD, uh, not a master's in, in uh, mineral economics. And, and really, it, it opened the door for me to get involved on the business side of the business. So I started my career with a company called Cypress Minerals Company. Cypress was acquired by Phelps Dodge, uh, and Phelps Dodge, of course, was acquired by Freeport. 
And uh, I spent about seven years both in technical and financial roles with Cyprus, uh, then moved to Newmont and, and spent seven years with Newmont as director of business development, really focused on M&A, but uh, got to work on the big Batahijau mine, uh, both at the feasibility study level and then marketing copper concentrates uh, with our partners at Sumitomo. So that was kind of a whole new realm, a new world for me. Um, went off and uh, got recruited to run a little junior company for about three years and and then got to know the team at Resource Capital Funds in their infancy and uh, joined at the beginning of uh, 2001. So, you know, it's coming up on 23 years that I've been with Resource Capital Funds and and uh, yeah, it's been a it's been a fantastic uh, period of time. Uh, you know, the mining industry is, as you know, is very cyclical and has gone through interesting times over that 23 year period. Uh, Resource Capital Funds started up in 1998, so around 26 years ago, um, and and so we've seen a lot. We've invested in a lot. So it's been a it's been a really interesting time and a fun time to be in the industry. Yeah, so I just wonder if you can just tell us about uh, Resource Capital Funds, um, a little bit about the history, and obviously you've you've been there, like you said, uh, in the early days, um, and what what the company does and the, the types of groups um, inv- who invest you invest with, and the, the types of companies that you uh, um, put money into. Yeah, so Resource Capital Funds, as I mentioned, started up in 1998. Uh, we pioneered the whole concept of private equity for mining. We were the first one and the only one for many years that did private equity in mining, um, focused on really uh, initially funding feasibility studies. And it was, uh, you know, we'd find that a, a mining company could go out and raise money to do their exploration. But once the discovery was found, quite often it was quite challenging for them to raise money to do their engineering studies. So the, the creation of resource capital funds was really around funding that engineering work to get them to a feasibility study. On the back of the feasibility study, they could go off and raise money in the equity markets and the debt markets. Over time, what we found though, is that you really had to stick with these companies further to really participate in that value creation. And so we then ended up uh, raising larger pools of money that allowed us to actually help fund the construction and and the building of these new mines. And so it, so over the history of the firm, we you know we went from financing engineering work to today where we're funding construction of new mines. Over the 26-year history, uh, Resource Capital Funds has invested in over 200 uh, mining companies. We've invested in over 50 countries around the world. Uh, we've invested in over 30 commodities, so dotted all across the periodic table. So we've had a tremendous amount of experience. And we've expanded our breadth of investment to go at, you know, from exploration all the way through to buyouts of existing operations. So um, really, uh, you know, we we run the complete gambit of uh, of investments, and and we've had um, you know had a lot of experience in lots of different jurisdictions, lots of different parts of the world, lots of different commodities. So it's been a great a great learning experience, but also a great uh, experience for our investors, for our limited partners that uh, that invest with us. The types of investors that we have are quite unique. Um, uh, you know, they, they're firms that are looking for differentiated returns. And so we get a wide range from university endowments to charitable trusts and foundations to family offices. We have some pension plans, both corporate and state. Uh, we have 
a couple of sovereign wealth funds invested. Um, so it's quite a diverse range of, uh, of investors, but they're all looking for differentiated returns. Where can we add what they call alpha, you know, the non-correlated returns to the industry? Uh, sorry, non-correlated returns to the general market. And so it's, um, you know, something that we've offered and, and uh, we're, you know, we're very pleased with how that's gone over the years. Well, and obviously we mentioned you've been with RCF for a long time. What sort of jobs prepared you to do what you're doing now um, over the years with the company? And what are, what are the different roles that you've played with RCF? Yeah, um, so, you know, I started out uh, between my, after my bachelor's degree, I worked in uh, in the Cerita mine. Um, it's a copper mine south of Tucson where you know I was involved in just um, general early engineering work and and it was quite a um, you know quite a unique opportunity, great way to to learn about um, just how a mine works, you know what's involved in mining and then and then how does the mill work? How does the crushing plant work? So so learning the intricacies of how a mine works was 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 very valuable. Um, then working for companies like Cypress and uh, I, I had two different roles. I, I built financial models for investments that we were making in Cypress, but then I also got uh, transferred to a copper smelter. And so I was on the feasibility study team to, to build a new copper smelter in Arizona uh, and then spent three years living in Miami, Arizona and being a part of the operating team um to to operate this new technology of smelting copper smelting which was you know a fabulous opportunity and um you know at a pretty young age i had quite a large number of people reporting to me got to have to deal with uh, hr issues deal with um, both a maintenance team and an operations team that uh had different demands and so you learn really learn a lot about the sector and then moving to newmont you know my my roles there were really focused on business development so it was it was looking at at merger and acquisition opportunities, but one of the exciting roles I had at Newmont was uh, commercialization of new technologies that were developed. Newmont had this has this fabulous uh, laboratory and research and development system, and so they were developing new technologies broadly and and trying to figure out you know what do we do with them to commercialize them. And so I got to be a part of that, which was again great experience. Um, and then finally at Newmont, when we were building the, the Batahija mine in Indonesia, we partnered with Sumitomo and I was asked to be a, a member of the marketing team for the copper concentrates that we were going to produce. And so I um, had a chance to go off and, and travel all over the world, meeting with different copper smelters with uh, two other people from Sumitomo and the three of us made up the marketing team. So again, you know, a completely different sort of uh, exposure to the mining industry and, and, and an important aspect of it. Um, and on the back of that, I, I got recruited to run the little junior company. And, and that was a different experience altogether. You know, I had to worry about how are we going to make payroll each, you know, each month and how are we going to fund ourselves and, and how are we going to, you know, who are we going to raise money from in, in, in developing this project? Um and that that prepared me really for joining RCF then and uh, and you know when when we're looking at a project and as I mentioned we you know we've invested in over two hundred so um, you know when you're looking at a project you've got sort of the experience to look and ask the right questions when you're doing due diligence to really try to understand what the you know what the key issues are that they're 
that they may face as they're developing their project. Um, so it's, yeah, it's been a really, um, you know, I felt like I was very well prepared coming into this role to, um, to, to be successful at RCF. So, so I joined RCF, uh, like I said, at the beginning of 2001, my role there was initially as, uh, as an investment manager, looking for investment opportunities, managing investments that we had. Um, I've, I've, you know, had different roles as a, as a deal team lead, um, and all the way up to running the private equity side of our business. And I was responsible for, uh, for a fairly sizable team with, uh, with our flagship fund, which was the private equity fund. Um, we have three other strategies within RCF. We have, uh, uh, what we call the opportunities fund, which focuses on earlier stage and less control type positions. We have a technology and innovation strategy, which focuses on new technologies for the mining industry. And then we have a credit strategy. And um, the, the private equity side was the flagship side of the business. And and I've you know I've gotten to work with some fabulous investment professionals, uh, um, you know, that helped me build that that side of our business. And you know we've we've had a great team to do that. So it's been a yeah fun time. Well, what differentiates uh, RCF from other uh, mining-focused uh, private equity firms, um, and what do you attribute to its success? Yeah, look, I think the um, I I think there's a number of things. One is not only have we invested in over 200 companies, but we've exited over 150 of those investments, and. I, you know, I think it's one thing to make an investment in a mining company or a mining project, but it's another thing to exit and make money out of that investment. And and so we've had tremendous experience doing that. I think you know one of the differentiators that that's allowed us to be successful is that we we have very strong technical capabilities, and so we have an in-house team of uh, of technical people that are are very strong at analyzing geology mining metallurgy and they're they're dedicated to just the um the technical side they don't get involved in the investment they help support us on the investment side so you know we think of them almost as an internal consulting group but it's you know it's our own in-house technical expertise that we know that the quality of the work that they're going to do uh, the other thing we've brought in house is uh, is uh, the economic side. It's the commodity strategy side. So it's uh, understanding what the what the macro environment is doing and how is that macro environment going to impact the, the the supply and demand for minerals going forward. Um, as I mentioned, we've invested in thirty different commodities and uh, over thirty different commodities, and each one has unique supply and demand characteristics. And so. You know, when we get involved and when we make those investments, we really need to understand, um, you know, typically our hold periods three to seven years. So we're thinking, OK, let's say five years out. What is that market going to look like for this commodity? And what does that mean for our ability to sell this asset at that point in time? So so that's a, an important part. And then we have a, a large in-house technical services, uh, sorry, a large in-house legal team. And then very importantly, we have an in-house team dedicated to ESG. And so, you know, from day one, 26 years ago, we've been focused on um, how do you build these mines responsibly and sustainably. And that's been a big part of what we do. You know, ESG is a it feels like it's almost uh, taken on a, a huge role in its own right recently, but it's something from day one we've had to do. Um, 
with the type of investors that I mentioned before, the last thing we want is for any embarrassment coming back to them or anything to damage our reputation. And so, you know, you have to you have to build these mines responsibly and sustainably. And 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 again, we've done that from day one. But now we had to have a dedicated team in house to help us really evaluate uh, and ensure that we have that social license to operate when we're building a new mine. So it's it's quite critical to what we do. Yeah. Obviously, you mentioned obviously lots of projects that you've invested in. Um, is there a particular process that you go through when you're analyzing a particular project then when you invest? And obviously, what you just also mentioned about forecasting maybe five years out, that must be pretty diff difficult to forecast that far out. Is there, again, is there a certain, obviously, you can probably look at history, but is there a certain, again, process or model that you, you look at if you're forecasting as well? Um, look, I think, so let's start with the first one, the, the process that we go through. It's a very um, regimented process. And we have, uh, we've actually put together what we call the investment decision-making process. It's a, it's a white paper that we use. And when we recruit a new person to the investment team, you know, we really hammer home with them that this is the process that we follow. And it's, it, it's, like I said, very regimented. It starts with desktop due diligence. It then includes a site visit. Uh, it includes them, you know, looking at all the technical aspects, the financial aspects, building the financial models, uh, doing the market analysis, the ESG analysis. Mm -hmm. Our investment committee papers uh, can often be, you know, 100 to 200 pages long, where they, um, you know, they cover each of these uh, uh, critical parts of the investment in great detail. And then we look at how are we going to exit this investment. And 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 so to, to your second part of that question, we have our commodity strategist, commodity economist, really help us evaluate what does the market supply and demand balance look like. And what I'd say is there's you know there's fantastic data out there that uh, that helps us look at the supply side. What you know so so I think we have a pretty good handle on what new supplies are coming on the market over the next you know, three to 10 years, what we have less confidence in is what is the demand going to look like? And that's where you have to look at these, you know, different forecasts of uh, EV production, for example, or, you know, through the energy transition, what is the grid demand for, for various minerals going to look like? Um, what is the, you know, the product mix going into batteries going to look like in two years, three years, five years? And so we look at all these different, you know, statistics and different data sets, and and really feed that into into various models to come out with what we project as a forecast. Um, we then we use stochastic analysis in our in our in our uh, financial models. So we're you know we're putting probability distributions around each variable, whether it's a grade of the ore or metallurgical recovery or commodity pricing, about 15 to 20 variables that go in the financial models are, are built with um, probability distributions. And so, you know, instead of getting a single number that here's the NPV or the IRR of the project, we get a, we get a nice uh, curve of what the probability is to achieve uh, a certain NPV or IRR on the project. And, and that really helps us when we do our risk assessment, like what is, you know, what is the risk here? What are the key variables that we have to try to mitigate to, to manage that risk? And so we, you know, those financial models are very, very detailed and we spend a lot of time making sure that they're, 
they're accurate and and they're informative. Um, you mentioned obviously you've been involved in sort of 200, 200 projects. Um, what are some of the most memorable transactions uh, that you and RCF have been involved in? Oh, there, you know, we've, we've been through so many. There's, uh, uh, you know, way back, uh, we were the first first Western investment firm to build a new coal mine in China, for example. You know, that was really interesting. That was at a time when China was looking for not only Western or, or, or you know, for financing, uh, but they were looking for safety standards and building mines more safely. They, you know, they had a horrible record of, of uh, safety statistics in, in the mining industry in China at that time. Um, and they were looking for technology. And so we, you know, we brought all of those to the table and, and had a very successful investment in a new coal mine in China, which today they don't need, you know, they have money, they have technology, they have safety standards. But back then it was, you know, that was pretty exciting to be a part of introducing some of those to, to China. Um, we invested in a range of commodities and lithium and the rare earth minerals way before they were fashionable. And um, and so we, we've had a lot of experience, but uh, you know, one of the ones that I was involved in that was really exciting was, was uh, a company called Mollycorp, which owned the Mountain Pass mine. It's now owned by MP Materials, but, but we acquired that from Chevron back in 2008. And, um, and the interesting part of that was Chevron acquired that mine when they acquired Unical. And uh, we approached Chevron soon after their Unical acquisition, and and you know Chevron really hadn't had a chance to assimilate what they acquired with Unical, and really didn't know much about that mining operation. And um, once they once they got their head around it, we approached them again, and and it took about eighteen months to negotiate a, a transaction that their biggest concern had to do with uh, environmental liabilities with that mine, and and how to not have future liabilities come back and haunt them. And so um, so we spent a year and a half putting together a program that involved a transition of of those um, liabilities to to us as the as the buyer, as Mollycorp, um, but also to manage um, you know how they were going, they had those liabilities. And so how they were going to reduce their liability exposure over an extended period of time. So really fascinating time to to be involved. Um, we invested in a zinc mine in in Portugal, for example, that allowed us, you know, gave us exposure to to Portugal, and and on the back of that, allowed us to acquire the Neves Corbo mine, which was a a joint venture between Rio Tinto and the and the government of Portugal, and and uh, ultimately a, a fabulously um, interesting and 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 fun investment to be involved with. Uh, so so you know, such a wide range, Rob. It's been uh, it's been a fun you know, fun time to be in the sector over those 26 years or 23 years. Um, you meant, obviously, you you told us your journey, um, uh, what you've done previously, and then got into uh, the skills that you learned and experiences that you uh, that you went through before joining RCF. Um, what advice would you give any sort of, I suppose, junior person um, wanting to get into the private equity space? Uh, in mining, what, what kind of advice would you give them? What kind of career paths could they could they be in, and the skills and experience that they need to then get into the private equity space? It's um you know historically we've uh, we've hired um, 
engineers that that have uh, have practical experience, have worked in the mining industry, uh, and then perhaps they've gone back to school and got an MBA or got a mineral economics uh, master's. Um, those would be sort of the the historical typical candidates that we would we would bring in. I'd say it's harder and harder to find people with those experiences, um, especially in the U.S. I think in in Australia we've had um, you know there there are many more candidates for the job openings that we have, but in the U.S. I think it's harder and harder because there's fewer and fewer um, graduates coming out of mining schools. Um, so so we've we've really focused on how do we find talented young people that have good uh, technical experiences, sciences backgrounds, uh, but also financial. And so we've we've expanded from just mining metallurgy geology backgrounds to um, to business backgrounds, but but we put our employees through a lot of testing and and um, you know make sure that they're well suited for what we do. And I'd say that's paid off, but it's you know so the advice I'd give to a young person that wants to get into mining private equity is, you know, ideally you go, you get a, a an engineering degree, work in the mines, get to know what the mining industry is about, and then and then you know do an MBA or a mineral economics master's degree, and and, and that that's a great background for what we what we like to see. But again, it's harder and harder to find those people. Um, and I would say there's you know there's a great opportunity for those that want to go into mining because I think you know as as you mentioned with uh, with Rowan Fendler in your podcast a, a couple of weeks ago. That there is going to be this massive shortage of mining uh, uh, people, and I can't remember the numbers, but I think if I remember correctly, there's 16,000 projected mining professionals coming out of uh, coming out of uh, schools, and and there's a need for almost double that uh, as we look forward to you know 2030, for example, and and the the commodities demand that we're projecting. So. Those, so there's a massive shortage of of people coming into the industry, and I think that's a great opportunity for a young person in high school or college trying to figure out what they want as a career path. It, you know, mining provides a great career opportunity, and we have to get that message out and try to explain to people why mining is a good place to to go in the future. Yeah, and but following on from that, if you were looking at more experienced mining professionals that are in the industry and perhaps have a good significant amount of background in operations again if they wanted to get into the private equity space is there again certain they might have the engineering and operational background is there a certain path that they could take to get into um, the private equity space if later on in their career that, that's an avenue that, that they want to uh, pursue well, you know, certainly they could go off and try to raise their own fund, but I'd say that's a very challenging thing. First-time funds are very, very hard to raise. Uh, there's a massive amount of legal uh, and, uh, um, you know, just regulatory responsibility when you raise a fund. And so it, it's not an easy exercise to raise a new fund. So I'd say that, you know, the best way is to go to an existing fund. And there's not very many of us out there, but there's a, you know, there are a, a couple of handfuls of different private equity firms focused on mining. And, I, you know, and I'd say getting involved with one of those is probably the the best way. Um, and, you know, if you've got a, if you've got a, Good strong technical background. I think one of the interesting ways to participate with a private equity firm is as a as an operating partner or as somebody that 
the private equity firm and we're we're looking for these people all the time you know good management is the hardest thing for us to find and so somebody that has a good background that you can put into your portfolio company and um and they're you know be there to represent rcf in our case um and help us produce a return provide a return to our investors i think is is critical so so have you know finding these operating partners people that can step into these roles is is a challenge to find good quality people and and there's fewer and fewer as you know as as we see retirements in the in this in the sector going so it, i'd say that's the that's the opportunity i think for somebody coming out of a mining company and that wants to get more into the private equity side of the business yeah certainly and obviously i work in recruitment so i i see this all the time with obviously uh, the skill shortage um looking at more what's happening now in the market uh, in the financial markets. Um, what are some of the more interesting trends you're seeing in the marketplace uh, today and at the moment? Oh, look, I think the energy transition, <clears throat> excuse me, the energy transition is is creating a lot of new opportunities, creating a lot of um, just <clears throat> new, you know, new and interesting opportunities for investments and for people to participate in. So, um, you know, for example, cobalt, you take cobalt, it's largely been dominated with production out of Central Africa. A lot of concerns about what we're going to do with cobalt in, in, in the future. And so identifying opportunities outside of, of Central Africa from the DRC, for example, um, that's a challenge and an opportunity. Um, there's an equal challenge going on at the, you know, with the battery chemistry. Like, how do you design cobalt out of your batteries? And, and so you're seeing you're seeing that. But from our perspective, uh, really the opportunity is identifying those minerals that are critical to the um, uh, critical to the energy transition, and and how do we help provide those commodities into the future? So, you know, I look at nickel. Um, you know, nickel is dominated out of uh, Indonesia right now. And, you know, are there opportunities for us to, to be non-reliant on, on a single country for such a, for such a high percentage of production? Um, and so, you know, we, we think there's great opportunities. There's some nickel assets here in the U.S., one that we're invested in that we think is a fantastic opportunity. But again, the regulatory environment in the U.S. makes it a challenge, and and uh, that's where we'd love to see some changes occurring that that allow us to build these mines in the U.S. or, or in in other countries that are a little bit more challenging from a regulatory environment. So um, the other the other mineral that you know that I think is critical to the to the uh, energy transition is copper. And, you know, I look at uh, the demand for copper today versus what it's expected to be in, you know, 2027 to 2030. Now it's almost a 50% increase from what we're producing today. And we simply don't have mines sort of in the pipeline waiting to be built. So, you know, we've really got to accelerate the, the development of new copper mines or the expansion of existing copper mines. Uh, and that's going to take massive amounts of money and massive amounts of time. And... So, you know, when I look forward, I think you know, there's some fabulous opportunities there um, for good projects to be developed in, in a fairly short period of time. So, so look, I'm, I'm as excited as I've ever been, uh, you know, for the future of mining. I think there's just a, a fantastic opportunity here for us um, 
you know, as, as I look forward to the next five or 10 years, I think we're in an unprecedented growth phase that, uh, that will create some great opportunities. How can the mining companies make them, uh, I suppose, themselves more attractive to private equity firms? Um, oh, that's an interesting one. You know, the, the um, we have companies approaching us all the time about needing investments and wanting investments, uh, looking for money. I mean, it's so hard to raise money right now in the in the sector. Um, and so, you know, we're looking at what differentiates and, and it all starts, I think, with the resource, you know, the quality of the resource that they have is critical because um, you can change. You can change a lot of things. You can change management. You can change your process design, the flow sheets, but you can't change the resource. And so it all starts with having a high quality resource in our minds. Um, but once you've got, you know, once you've got the asset, we find that so often the the mining companies that approach us underestimate their capital cost. Um, in fact, we did a study recent, not recently, we've done a series of studies over the years that looked at the, the projected cost in a feasibility study versus the actual cost to build the mine. So the capital cost of the, of the that was projected in the feasibility study versus what was actually incurred to build the mine. And we found that on average, it was about 25%. So so mining companies were underestimating by about 25% uh, the cost to build that mine. And that's critical, you know, 25% cost overrun, capital cost overrun can destroy your project economics if you're not careful. So, so my advice to the mining company is really do your homework on, you know, what the actual capital cost is. The other thing that is always underestimated is the startup, the, the commissioning timeline. So quite often you'll see somebody projecting out, oh, we'll have this mine up and running in three months. Well, we know if it's a complex ore body and a complex flow sheet, three months is just not enough time. And so, so you have to build in additional working capital and time to get to full, full production. And so just over the years, you know, in, in our experience, we've built that into our financial models. And then when we compare our financial models with what the company is presenting, quite often they'll be quite upset that we've you know, destroyed the economics of their project, but we think we've provided a realistic assessment of, of what that project's gonna look like. Um, and, and, and quite often, I mean, if, 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 it still, if it still looks attractive after we've done our financial model, then we get pretty excited about those projects and try to figure out then how to, you know, how to work with the management team to build it. So I'd say the advice to the mining company coming in is, Really make sure you're being realistic about uh, about your assumptions for capital costs, operating costs, startup timelines, metallurgical recoveries. All those, you know, weigh into whether or not the project's truly economic or not. And there's certainly a lot of variables to to think yeah. about, and uh, yeah, a lot of different outcomes. And I suppose that's where the difficulty difficulty lies. Yeah, absolutely. There are so many different variables, and um, and then. And then you know you, you on top of that you've got all the social license to operate the ESG issues, you know have you done the right thing from an environmental perspective and are you you know are you being welcomed into the community where you want to build this mine and so you know a big part of what we do then is spending time you know at the mine sites assessing whether or not uh, they're welcome and and if not what can you do to change the the narrative there. So, um, yeah, the, the mining industry is obviously critical for this the, the whole energy transition that we're we're moving into. Um, 
and again, we I speak about this sometimes on on with various guests on the podcast. What should the industry be doing to change the perception of mining? And I suppose the perception of mining or the, or the brand of mining sometimes does bring negativity to, to our industry. But I suppose over time we can change that change that perception. What what are your thoughts around what our industry can do to slowly change the perception of mining as a brand? Yeah, it's um it's such a critical issue. Gosh, Rob, I you know, I, I look back and I think of the mining industry's never promoted itself. Like here in in at least in Denver, we get ads for uh, oil and gas, the, the importance of oil and gas um, daily on our, you know, on our newscast, we'll, we'll get an advertisement for the oil and gas industry. We don't do that in the mining industry. Uh, and as I mentioned, we don't, you know, young kids growing up in the US or the UK, or as we talked about before we started, you know, we, even in Australia, some people aren't, aren't knowledgeable about the mining industry and they're, it's in their backyard. So we've got to do a better job of promoting the industry. Um, you know, it's got such a negative image because every, you know, when you do hear about mining in the news, it's usually negative. You know, it's usually a disaster of some sort or, you know, tailings failure or miners trapped underground or whatever the case might be. And so, you know, we've got to start putting out good stories about what we've done and what, you know, what, what has been accomplished on the positive side, because there is my father came from the mining industry and he used to always tell me, you know, mining is a noble industry you should be proud of. And, and I absolutely agree with that. And I think, um, you know, we don't do a good enough job promoting it. So, so what do we need to do? I think we need to, to get some of the senior mine, you know, all of the senior mining companies to participate. ICMM is, is trying to get the message out. They're doing a great job with Roe at the helm there. Um, you know, getting the message out, uh, getting people in the mining industry to go to high schools or elementary schools and and explain what mining's all about. We do that here. We you know we'll, we'll quite often go into the schools. Uh, I've done it with my kids when they were growing up. Um where you explain what is mining all about and you know you look around a room that you're in. Uh it's either mined or it's it's grown, right? It's uh so you know it's either wood or it's metals and and minerals that go into these classrooms and and so once I think we need to do more of that, you know, from a grassroots level. Um, but it's a challenge. It's a really, it's a big challenge. And just changing that perception. I do think the fact that the governments are today recognizing that mines are critical to the energy transition and we have uh, legislation around uh, uh, the IRA or uh, the CHIPS Act here in the U.S. or this U.S.-Australian uh, agreement that was just reached earlier this week, you know, I think... When I look at that, all of a sudden mining is getting better news. And I think people are, are are starting to realize that the energy transition doesn't occur without mining. And so I think we need to do more of that promotion and, and more of that to to help explain to the general public why mining is so critical. Yeah. It's interesting what you just said, where in the media around where, where, where you are in Denver, that you, you've got all advertising for oil and gas, but nothing around mining. Why is that? You know, I, well, I think I think part of it is budgets. You know, I think when you think about the cost of you know, running an ad on TV, it's very high. I think the oil and gas industry uh, probably has has bigger budgets to allow them to do that. 
But I also think that there, there may be a bit better organized. Um, so it's not one single company. It's a, it's a group of companies, I'm sure, that have gotten together and said we need to promote the oil and gas industry. I think the, the same thing has to happen in the, in the mining sector where um, you know, groups like ICMM get these mining companies, the, you know, the 50 largest mining companies in the world to sit down and say, okay, we're going to allocate 1% of our budget, whatever it is, to, to, to promote mining. And, and I don't think that the mining industry has been well enough organized to do that in the past. And, and you know, I think there is a push to try to try to do that in the future, but I, it's a tall task. You know, the, it's such a cyclical business. It's sort of feast or famine a lot of times. And, and I, I can only believe that that's going to be the first budget item that gets cut if, uh, you know, when things are, are not going well. Yeah. So getting, getting any company to commit to something like that is going to be a challenge. Look, I think the other thing is I don't think the mining industry really needed to advertise in the past, right? We just went about doing our business. We sold our product. People never really saw it, um, you know, saw it from the mine. They, they see it, of course, around their house, but they don't realize that it's a mined product. Where oil and gas, you know, you're putting gas in your car every day. You're getting a bill for your, you know, for your gas in your house. Uh, um, I, so I think the mining industry has always viewed itself as we can just fly under the radar. Today, I think it's probably more important than it was previously that we actually promote the industry, not only to get kids to to become mining engineers or metallurgical engineers uh, or geologists, but but also just to change the perception. Mining isn't a bad industry. It's a great industry and we should be proud of it. Yes, certainly. Um, I've got a couple more questions. Um, you're going to be um, at the Resourcing Tomorrow event uh, at the end of November in London. Um, you're going to be part of a panel. Um, I wonder what the, the theme is and what kind of uh, uh, content that you may be uh, speaking about. Yeah, it's really about how do we attract people to this industry? It's, you know, this whole uh, issue that the industry is going to grow a lot over the next number of years. And we just don't have enough people. We don't have the leadership in the pipeline to come up. So, so not only, you know, it's how do we attract double the number of people that are planning to, you know, that we expect going into mining to 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 go into mining. And, and so how do we make it a more attractive industry? And how do we attract minorities? How do we attract more women into the industry? Um, and so part of that is, you know, you look at the mine sites, they're very remote. They're not always the most pleasant places to live. Well, you know, you look at what's happening in Australia, for example, a lot of the mines are being run remotely. And so you have these remote facilities in Perth that are running mines in, you know, the, the Pilbara or in Northern part of Western Australia. And, uh, and that's all of a sudden, you know, those are high paying jobs. They can be, a um, you know, jobs where you only travel to the mine sites periodically. And that might make it, that, that will certainly make it more attractive. So I think there's a number of things we can do to to, to make the industry more attractive um, that we'll talk about on that panel. Uh, I think there's some some mining schools out there that are doing some really unique things. The University of Arizona, which is where I did my bachelor's and master's, has put together a new mining curriculum that's that's uh, multidisciplinary. So if you get a mining degree, you actually take classes in the agriculture department, learning about reclamation. You take classes in the medical school to learn about safety and health. You take classes in the law school to learn about uh, the, the legal aspects, titles and contracts. 
So it, it's taken this multidisciplinary approach that I think is really going to attract people to the industry, you know, to to to, to studying mining uh, at Arizona, which I, I I think is fantastic, and and I'd love to see more of that as an example of, of ways to attract people. Yes, certainly. Um, and lastly, what's the outlook for uh, resource capital funds over the sort of short to medium term? Is there particular objectives and goals the company want to uh, want to meet? Well, look, I, as I mentioned before, we're very excited about the future of mining. And so we're, um, you know, we're excited to attract new investors to this sector. Uh, a big part of what we do is educating um, educating investors that this is actually a really uh, exciting time to be investing in mining. Uh, and and so we're educating them about the mining industry and, and, and why it uh, should be in their portfolios. So, so a big part of what we're doing is attracting people that wouldn't have thought about mining as to why they should be investing in this sector. Um, the other thing is we're expanding, you know, we're, we're a vast majority of our investors are U.S. based. Um, we're now expanding to where we're really, you know, looking at raising money outside the U.S. and, and attracting people that wouldn't, again, wouldn't think about mining as a, as an investment alternative. So, so that's a big part of what we're doing at RCF. You know, we see this fantastic opportunity coming forward, and and so we want to be um, attracting as many investors as we can to this sector. Ross, really appreciate your time. Thank you for sharing your um, your experiences, t- talking to us uh, about RCF um, and some of the topics that we covered. Obviously, branding, uh, skills, um, skill shortages, etc. Um, if our audience wants to reach out to you, if they want to uh, know more about RCF, um, how can they go about doing that? What social media platform channels? Uh, can well, they find look, you certainly we're, we're, we're very active on LinkedIn. We have our website, resourcecapitalfunds.com. Uh, encourage anyone to go there. My contact details are on uh, on the website. I'm happy for anyone to reach out to me or, or to anyone else at Resource Capital Funds. Uh, and we're happy to happy to talk more about what we do and why we're so excited about the future of this sector. Yeah. And obviously, as I mentioned a couple of times, you are going to be at resourcing tomorrow at the end of November. So um, anyone that's listening, please, uh, please go and get your tickets. And obviously you can hear hear Ross speak. And if you've if you've got any uh, questions that you want to ask him, then uh, I'm, I'm sure he'd be happy to uh, answer those questions if he uh, if you approach him. So, um, yeah, Ross, really appreciate your time. Thank you again. Um, and I'll see you at my uh, resourcing tomorrow. Sounds great, Rob, and and thank you, and thank you for the podcast. You've got some really great, uh, great people that you've talked to over the over the years. So thank you for what you do. Yeah, appreciate that. Thank you. And 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 following on from that, it's obviously the audience that I always uh, like to appreciate um, because with, without the guests, without the audience, this is not possible. Um, so I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, please keep um, sharing this content to people within our industry, but also people outside of our industry. Um, as Ross has alluded to a few times, uh, mining is essential uh, for us to evolve um, and we need to improve the branding of our of our industry. So we can only do that by your help and your support, by sharing the message, sharing these podcast episodes, get them to have a listen, see what their thoughts are. They'll probably come back with a lot of questions for you to answer. um, And obviously you'll be well equipped to answer those questions. So um, as always, appreciate your continued support. And until next time, happy mining.
Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.